Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 1, Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise, five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you. But go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding. And the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Regret. It seems like such a small word to describe an ocean of emotion. Probably on more than one occasion, someone has asked you the question, do you have any regrets? Do you have regrets about the person that you married or failed to marry, about the career you chose or failed to choose? Do you regret not buying Apple early on or Amazon or Disney stock before it reached record highs? Do you regret not keeping your childhood comic collection? We all make choices. We make choices about what we're going to do with our life, how we're going to spend our life, how we're going to preoccupy our life. We make choices. Arthur Brisbane wrote, quote, Regret for time wasted can become a power for good in the time that remains if it will only stop the Waste and idle of useless regretting. Most of us have experienced some form of lost opportunity. For some, lost opportunity can be as simple and as painless as driving past the garage sale in our neighborhood. For others, it's the tragic decision to postpone the one and only source of salvation from sin. You see, this parable has a twofold message. It's a parable about the worst kind of lost opportunity, but it's also a parable that each and every individual without exception is responsible for his or her own spiritual preparation. I'm going to suggest to you that each person on earth is going to be given an opportunity to repent of their sin. 
Each person is given an opportunity to trust the Lord, to believe in Christ as Savior. As I've repeatedly said, no one on Judgment Day will rightly or honestly claim that they had no chance and they had no choice. No one on Judgment Day is going to be given anything other than an honest assessment. And as I have repeatedly said, no one is going to find himself or herself in heaven accidentally or in hell accidentally. In the last chapter, Jesus answers the questions at the beginning of that chapter about the signs of his coming and the end of the age in chapter 24, verse 3. He proceeded that the signs that are going to accompany and precede his coming include times of apostasy in verses 4 and 5 and 11 of chapter 24. People being led astray in verse 11 of chapter 24. Anarchy in verses 20, chapter 24, verses 6 through 8. Apathy, affliction of the saints in verses 9 and 10. Jesus made it clear that he is going to come back literally bodily, physically, certainly, secretly. He's coming to reward the righteous and to punish the wicked. A shift in the emphasis took place in chapter 24, verses 45 through 51, as he spoke about a delay in his coming. He talked about a disobedient servant and an obedient servant. The disobedient servant allowed carnality, apathy, indifference, and brutality to be substituted for this earnest expectation of the coming of his master. Something went terribly wrong in the wicked servant's life. He ceased to expect his master's return. He began to live his life as if the reality of what he's been entrusted with didn't matter. And again, if we learned anything at all, we learned that we should love the appearing of Jesus, that, we, that his appearing should motivate us to be obedient and faithful and loving. And for the Christian, failure to be faithful and obedient and loving results in a loss of opportunity and a loss of reward. The ultimate form of personal preparation takes place when you receive Christ as your Savior. We have to be saved from our sin, from our guilt, from our rebellion against God. We must trust Christ as our Savior. And just like marriage requires preparation, it requires preparation for you to meet your master. In the scripture, the church is called the bride of Christ. Being married to Jesus requires that we're saved in chapter 25 verses 1 through 13 that we are responsible stewards Jesus is going to point out in verses 14 through 30 that we be practical servants in verses 31 through 46 there's a very multifaceted dimension if you will to this thing that we call personal preparation 
And so it begins with the parable. And remember what I've repeatedly told you. A parable is an earthly story that reveals a heavenly truth. When he says, then the kingdom of heaven, the then is based on everything that's been spoken of in chapter 24. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Ancient oriental weddings were very different from our own. And even though each village had certain kinds of nuances in the wedding ceremonies, there was somewhat of a uniformity in the weddings in the Middle East, in the ancient world. In the time of Jesus, a wedding had three elements. Number one, the first element included the arrangement by the parents of the bride and the groom. In those days, children didn't pick their spouses. Parents did. And when you live in this culture and society, many of us want to make that a comeback arrangement. People are going, hey, let's bring back arranged marriages. Now, I know that our children and our, our grandchildren might not appreciate it. But in those days, parents picked the partners. Number two, the second element consisted of the traditional ceremony. When the bridegroom, accompanied by his friends, would proceed from his home to the home of the bride and claim her as his own. This was often referred to as the time of the betrothal. The, the couple would exchange promises and vows in the presence of the family and the friends. And at that point, the couple were considered married and they couldn't terminate the legal contract absent death or a legal divorce. If the husband died during this period of betrothal, the wife was considered to be a widow. So the betrothal could last a few days. It could last a few weeks. It could last a few months. It could even last as long as a year. And during that time, the husband went out and found a job, established a home that would be suitable for his bride. And so as he is establishing the home, finding the job, during the betrothal period, the couple don't live together. They don't consummate their marriage they remain celibate. And then number three, the element of the marriage was the groom would leave his home and he would approach the bride's home and he would take his bride back to his home. And because it would sometimes happen in the after, after dark, this is at a time when Edison didn't live and Tesla didn't live. They didn't have electric lights and they didn't have a way to, to light up the place. And so they would have torches. They would have lamps, if you will, to light the way. And so the Lord wants everyone to be ready for his second coming. And he likens the kingdom of heaven to the events of this wedding celebration. Weddings in the ancient world were the supreme social event in the Galilee. I've done literally hundreds of weddings and hundreds of funerals. Do you know what weddings and funerals have in common? No one remembers what the preacher said. They remember the person being married or the person being buried. Jesus is basically... Picturing this joyous event. 
he, he makes the unexpected coming an appropriate analogy of his own coming in power and glory. And if we know anything else about this parable, he is the groom who comes for his bride. It's interesting to me. When Jesus came the first time, John writes in John chapter 1 verse 11, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. People who reject Jesus as the Savior the first time will have an opportunity to believe and repent in this sense. Will people be aware that something is really wrong with them? Will they be able to respond right up till the time of the second coming? Will people be able to receive Christ as Savior? Now, again, the disciples were surely familiar with Jewish wedding customs. The ten virgins or the bridesmaids are the young ladies who accompany the bride. They're unmarried and they are pure. So who's the bridegroom in the story? Jesus. Who are the young ladies or the ten virgins? These are the people who profess to know Jesus at the time of his second coming. Jesus doesn't reveal the bride's identity in the story. But I suspect that the bride is the church. Could the church be already raptured? Perhaps. We can only speculate. My belief is that that's exactly what's happened. Does this parable take place prior to the rapture or, or during the tribulation period? Again, it all depends on who you ask. But if you're asking me, there's going to come a time again where Jesus literally, physically, fundamentally, in reality comes. The ten virgins take lamps and prepare to meet the groom. The, the noun translated in the opening verse, to meet, means literally a meeting. The word was used to describe a dignitary or an important official who would come during the time of the visitation. And so the fact that Jesus lists ten bridesmaids may or may not be important. We know that there were ten commandments given by Moses. It takes ten men to make a Jewish assembly. Um, it's, and again, in the Jewish assembly, it was often the place where certain celebrations took place. According to Josephus, it took 10 men to celebrate the Passover. 10 in the scripture becomes a number of completion. The bridesmaids are virgins, which speak of the custom of the day that the people who accompany the bridal party are chaste and pure. And again, almost certainly the word lamp is a reference to a torch, which is a stick that would have been wrapped in linens and soaked in oil. And the torch served several purposes. You, you would use the torch to light the way, but it would also be a way of separating yourself from the bridal party. When you go to a, a, a wedding here, you have groomsmen and bridesmaids. And they're usually set apart by the way they dress or where they stand. But in that culture, the wedding party and the people who accompanied 
The bride were those people who carried these special torches because, again, in a culture where you don't have physical lighting, it was a mechanism to light the way. And so the people carrying the torches torches were special participants in the wedding celebration. So this is why it was important for each bridesmaid or each virgin to have a torch. It became essential for your participation in the celebration. And so who are they? These are the people who claim to profess Christ as Savior. These are the people who claim to love his appearing. Outwardly, all ten virgins appear the same. They're in the right place at the right time. They have the right garment. They each possess a, a torch. But look what it says in verse 2. Now five of them were wise. And five of them were foolish. For all intents and purposes, they look the same. But they're not the same. And this, by the way, is one of the important points of this parable. Five are wise. Five are foolish. Well, does this mean that Jesus declares that they're five wise and they're five foolish? Does this mean anything? It may or may not mean something. It may mean that the divide between the believer and the make-believer is way bigger than any of us ever imagined. Because we don't have the ability to look inside of a person's heart. Because we don't have the ability to determine what's going on inside of their heart. How do we understand this divide between the believer and the make-believer? Clearly in, their, in the world there are a billion plus people who name the name of Jesus. There are people who identify themselves as Christians. There are people in, who identify themselves as Roman Catholic or Greek Orthodox or Protestant or liberal denominations. There are people who say, I am a Christian because I'm not a Jew and I'm, I'm not a Muslim and I'm not a, an atheist. I'm something. Outwardly, they all appear the same. Are all professors in Christ possessors of Christ? And that's the big question. More importantly, some were prepared. Some were not prepared. And that might be the point, in part. Some are prepared, some are not prepared. In verse 3, it says, those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. The foolish virgins took the torches, but they had no oil. The wise ones had both a torch and the oil. They had nothing that would give combustion or light or heat the torch as far as the foolish ones. Those who were foolish took their lamps or their torches. Now think about this for just a moment. A torch that won't light serves no purpose. And that's the point. This is like having a flashlight, but having no batteries. This is like the story that I heard 
back in the day when a person was would stand at the crossroads of a railway station and he was called before the court because there was a tragic accident in front of the railway where, where a car got hit by a, by a passing train and they called the man who was supposed to wave the lamp and, and, and the, 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 the attorney said, were you there? And he said, yes. Did you have your torch, your lamp? Yes. Did you wave it? Yes. And then he muttered as he left the witness stand, I'm so glad they didn't ask me if it was lit or not. <laughs> That's part of the point. This is like the person who says they're a Christian. They go to church. They carry a Bible. They have fellowship with the saints. But there's no light. There's nothing burning inside of their heart. You might think about this for just a moment. Because you have a saving relationship with Jesus. Or you don't. If you simply know about Jesus, but you don't know Jesus, you remain in spiritual darkness. The wise took no oil in their vessel for their lamps, verse 4. The wise possessed the oil. They weren't simply professors, they were possessors. And again, what is this oil? Well, oil in the Bible will sometimes speak of an anointing. It will sometimes speak of the Holy Spirit. It will sometimes speak of the presence of the Holy Spirit. I think the oil speaks of the light and the preparation that allows participation in the celebration. This person is born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. They're born from on high according to what the Bible says. And so again, this person is born by the power of the Holy Spirit. And you may remember another parable of another wedding where Jesus condemns the guest who fails to wear the proper wedding garment in Matthew chapter 22, verses 11 through 13. The man was cast out because... He wouldn't do the one and only thing that the king required. To wear the wedding garment that was provided by the king. Five of the bridesmaids don't have sufficient supplies of oil for their torches. They have a form of godliness. But they deny the power thereof. They have no real spiritual life. Because they don't really belong to Jesus. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 5 it says, Having a form of godliness but denying its power and from such people turn away. Is it possible to believe in Jesus? Is it possible to go to church? Is it, imposs is it possible to read your Bible? Is it possible to go through all of the emotions and motions that Christians go through and not be saved. So many people are committed to religion. They're committed to their denomination. They're like a loyal fan. They're loyal to the home team. They embrace Christ religiously. They embrace Christ socially. They embrace Christ politically. They may even, dare I say, embrace Jesus emotionally or even intellectually. 
they've never been born again by the power of the Spirit of God. They've never come to a place of personal repentance. They've never come to a place where they go, you know what? My sin separates me from God. If I'm going to be saved, if I'm going to be different, I have to be different only based on what Jesus has done for me by the power of the gospel. So many people think that if they go through the emotion and the motion and the, 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 the ritual, that they're going to be just fine. They're torches without oil. They're clouds without rain. They're trees without fruit. And here becomes part of the point. It's impossible. It is impossible. It is impossible to deceive the Lord. You can fool your friends. You could even fool your spouse. You might be able to fool your children. And the most tragic, the most tragic thing of all is that you might be able to fool yourself. But you can't fool the living Lord of the universe. Jesus knows the truth about the spiritual condition of the heart. Jesus knows the person who has the believing heart, the person who has the prepared heart, the person who has the expectant heart, what, pray tell, what is the condition of your heart? Because this parable presents the problem of the make-believer. A make-believer is a professor, but not a possessor. Like wheat and tares, they have an outward resemblance to the true believer, but inside they lack the spiritual substance that makes it possible for you to be identified as the true believer. And you might be thinking, you mean it's not good enough to simply acknowledge the existence of God? No, because the Bible says the devil believes in God and trembles. Satan believes in God. Demons believe in God. Does this mean they're going to heaven? Of course not. You might believe in the existence of a Bible or the existence of a church or the, even the existence of the gospel. But are you saved? Truly saved? Have you trusted Jesus Personally, have you believed and received Jesus? The Bible says, believe in your heart and speak with your mouth. The Bible says, confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and you will be saved. Believe and receive him. You have to be willing to acknowledge your sin and your need for a savior. But again, it requires possession of Jesus. And then Jesus possesses you. You rely on Jesus. Jesus becomes the solution to the problem of sin. Jesus becomes the solution for your standing before God. The solution can't be, well, I went to church and I opened my Bible and I put a few dollars in the agape box. It would appear that there will be real and counterfeit Christians right up to the return of Jesus Christ. Look what it says in verse 5. But while the bridegroom was delayed, 
They all slumbered and slept. This reinforces the idea of urgency and expectancy. The timing of Jesus is unknown. The coming of Jesus may seem delayed from a human perspective, but it's not from God's perspective. And remember, we've already talked about this. The Lord, according to James, isn't slack in his promise about coming. The Lord, every moment of every day is just another day of grace. It's so that you can receive Christ. It's so that you can be saved. It's so that you don't have to go through this treacherous situation. The coming of Jesus is going to happen right on time. It's going to happen right on schedule. Jesus may have been giving his disciples a little hint. The coming of Christ may not be as soon as you want, but it will be sooner than you think. How do you hold those two things that seem so paradoxical in stress in just the right measure? I, I don't believe when it says that they all slumbered and slept. I don't believe that this means that they were lazy or ill-prepared or faithless. Everyone gets drowsy and all of them slept. Not even the faithful saints are going to know the day or the hour. One Bible writer says the sleep of the foolish bridesmaids might suggest their false confidence, whereas the sleep of the prudent ones could suggest their genuine security and rest in the Lord, unquote. If you know the Lord Jesus is your Lord and your Savior, you can lay your head down with confidence. Did you pray the prayer when you were a little kid? No, I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. Did you have a traumatic experience like me? You mean I could die in the middle of the night? I'm six years old. You mean I could close my eyes and never open them again? Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. You see, the prepared as well as the unprepared continued in their daily duties. They ate. They drank. They slept. It's not the external activities, but the internal condition of the heart that matters most. This is me giving you permission to go to the Bronco game this afternoon. <laughs> yes, it's okay to root for the home team. Just make sure you're right inside of your heart. Are you prepared on the inside? for all of the things that could happen on the outside. And look at the bridegroom in verses 6 through 12. It says in verse 6, And at midnight a cry was heard. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out and meet him. Then all those virgins arose and they trimmed their lamps. In the parable, the, the bridegroom comes when everyone is fast asleep. They're awakened by a midnight cry. It reminds me of what's said elsewhere in the scripture. The voice of an archangel. The trumpet of God. The people of Israel, by the way, left Egypt at 
midnight in Exodus chapter 12, verse 29, it says, and it came to pass at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn of the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of the livestock. All the bridesmaids knew the bridegroom was going to come soon. They all knew and they gathered at the bride's house waiting for him. All the bridesmaids knew the engagement period was about to come to a close. They didn't know when he would come. But they're awakened by a shout. Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. And look at verse 7. In verse 7 it says, Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. It's an unusual translation in verse 7. See where it says trimmed their lamps? It's an interesting Greek word. It's the Greek word kosmeo. You may or may not know that word. You know the word kosmos, which speaks of the world. You, you ladies know the word, and some of you men, tragically, cosmetic. The word cosmeo literally means to set in order. It means to make the appropriate preparation, to set in order, hence trim the lamps. Whatever else this verse means, the virgins face the prospect of meeting the bridegroom. And listen carefully, all of them are meeting the groom. This is where the proverbial rubber meets the road. This is the moment of truth. Both the wise and the foolish, both the prepared and the unprepared are going to face the groom. The trimming of the lamps or torches probably meant the cutting of the edges, the ragged edges of the cloth. It meant dipping the rag or soaking it in the oil. And at this point, the foolish virgins realize they have no oil in which to trim the torch. They have no way to light the torch. It says in verse 8, And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamp is going out. But the wise answered, said, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. There's several important things that I want you to notice about that portion of the scripture. Did the foolish virgins realize in advance that they weren't prepared? Some of you say no, and you're wrong. I'm going to ask you a question. Do you know if you have a driver's license? You either have one or you don't. This is not rocket science. If a police officer pulls you over and says, can I see your license and registration? And by the way, if you don't have a license, are you going to know it the moment he pulls you over? This is part of the point. Does the unbeliever, does the make-believer realize their lost condition? Do they know they're without Jesus? Do they know there's something wrong? Do they know that there's something dark? There's something empty. There's something missing. 
Why did the foolish virgins, why didn't they get the oil before the bridegroom arrived? We're not told why they didn't do it. People have unlimited excuses to continue in their rebellion, to continue in their sin, to continue in their unbelief, to refuse to repent, to trust Jesus as Lord and Savior. We could spend the rest of the whole day going through the litany of excuses of why people don't come to Christ. I was listening to an old song with my son, Jonathan. I keep trying to find a life on my own apart from you. I'm the king of excuses. I've got one for every selfish thing I do. What's going on inside me? I despise my own behavior. It only serves to prove my lost condition, that I'm a man in need of a savior. Did they think that they could go to Heavenly Home Depot and get the oil? Did they think that they could borrow the oil from the true believer? And, and that's what they try to do in verse 8. You can't borrow someone else's preparation. You can't borrow someone else's relationship with Christ. Children, you can't borrow your mom and dad's faith. You can't borrow grandma and grandpa's faith. Again, John MacArthur writes, quote, no reason is given for their negligence. No doubt because the reason is irrelevant. Because they had ample warning that the bridegroom was coming. They had ample warning to be totally prepared for his arrival. Nothing could excuse their failure, unquote. And nothing will excuse my failure. Or your failure. I thought I had more time. I didn't think it was that big of a deal. I thought since I had the right garment and I was in the right place at the right time with the right instrument, that that would be enough. By the way, were the wise virgins hard hearted for refusing to share their oil? No. Again, because you can't share regeneration with anyone else. Your salvation does not ensure anyone else's salvation. You can't impart spiritual life. Only Jesus can impart this life by the power of the gospel, by his Holy Spirit. Salvation is a direct gift from God through Christ. In believing the gospel, it is received by grace through faith and that not of yourselves. Salvation isn't like membership at Costco where you can hand your card to someone else and say, just pretend that you're me. It doesn't work that way. The saved can't become saviors. We who receive saving grace can't impart saving grace to others. This is why I plead with you every single week. Salvation can't be bought. The buying of the oil simply means securing salvation from the only source where it's possible, which is the Lord himself. There is no other name according to the Bible given under heaven whereby we must be saved. Even in, the, in, Isaiah's gospel, in Isaiah's writings, the prophet writes in 55 verse 1, Ho, everyone who thirsts, 
come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money, without price. There are things that can be purchased, but not by you. It's already purchased by Jesus Christ himself. Paul wrote that he would gladly face eternal damnation if that would result in the salvation of his Jewish brethren in Romans chapter 9, verses 3 and 4. He said that he would gladly experience the punishment if it meant that his Jewish brethren could be saved, but not, no such thing is possible. You can't just simply with all of your heart, want your spouse or your children or your neighbor saved and go, I'm just through sheer willpower going to make sure that that person is saved. Guess what? You can pray for that person. You can share Christ with that person. You can live your life as if the gospel's true before that person. But only that person can repent of their sin. Only they can turn from their sin and turn to the Savior. In verse 10, it says, And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. That's the climax of the parable. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, open to us. And he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I don't know you. The door is shut. The chance is gone. The store is closed. The time is over. The opportunity to participate is past. Some people live in the painful delusion that they can get saved anytime they want. I'll just wait till after I graduate from high school. I'll just wait till after I've sowed my wild oats. I'll just wait until I get married. I'll wait till I get divorced. I'll wait till I get remarried. I'll wait till I quit my job. I'll wait till I quit drinking. I'll wait till I quit drugging. I'll wait. I'll, I'll wait. I'll wait. I'll wait. And some of you might think, how rude. How unfair. Why doesn't Jesus give them a second chance? After all, all they're guilty of is just forgetting the oil. But people apart from Christ have the door shut before them. And listen to their cries for a second chance in verse 11. God, please, please open the door. Open the door, please. Let us in. Let us in. We wore the garment. We carried the torch. We were in the right place at the right time. Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, I don't know you. Of course you know me. How could you not know me? That's me sitting in the chair. That's me in the front row. No offense if you're in the front row. That's me in the spotlight, losing my religion. Jesus isn't talking about someone's existence. Jesus is talking about someone's salvation. 
Whoever hears the word and believes in him has everlasting life. This is why Jesus says in John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they may know you and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus defines eternal life, not in terms of going to church, not even in terms of reading your Bible. It isn't participating in a religious structure. It isn't being baptized or it isn't having communion. It isn't the ritual that accompanies the reality of what it means to be saved. He says this is eternal life. That they may know you. And Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Jesus defines eternal life in terms of living forever and loving forever and being known by God and known by Jesus. And then he sounds the alarm in verse 13. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. I've repeatedly told you, watch out. Stay alert. Wake up. Look up. Break up with sin. The last days, according to Jesus, will find his return unknown and unexpected. And for those of you who've been keeping track, is this the first time he said this? No. Is this the second time he said this? No. Is this the third time he said this? No. Is it the fourth time he said this? No. Chapter 24, verse 36, verse 42, verse 44, Verse 50, here in verse 13, five times, five times, you don't know, you don't know, you don't know. Have you ever said to a child, how many times do I have to tell you? <laughs> Alfred Lord Tennyson used figures of, from this parable of the ten virgins in a song that he directed to wicked Queen Guinevere who learned too late the cost of her sin. Alfred Lord Tennyson wrote, Late, late, so late and dark the night and chill. Late, late, so late but we can enter still. Too late, too late. Ye cannot enter now, no light had we, for that we do repent. And le learning this, the bridegroom will relent. Too late, too late, ye cannot enter now, no light so late and dark. Chill the night, oh let us in that we may find the light. Too late, too late, you cannot enter now. Have we not heard the bridegroom is so sweet? Oh, let us in, though late, to kiss his feet. No. No. Too late. You cannot enter now. But it's not too late for you. It's not too late. The door hasn't closed. It remains open. It remains open for you. Only you know the truth. 
about the circumstances of your heart. Are you saved? Do you have a right relationship with God? Have you trusted him? If this parable means anything, if it means anything at all, if it means anything at all, you're in charge of your spiritual condition. In the next two parables, Jesus is going to show the importance of how proper stewardship becomes a part of preparation. And in the parable of the sheep and the goats, he's going to talk about serving those in need. Preparation means your heart is right. Stewardship means that you're taking good care of all that God has entrusted to you. Including helping those who desperately need your help. But for now, don't postpone. Don't put it off. Make sure that you have a right relationship with God. We're going to have communion in just a moment, but I'm going to have Carolyn come up, and I'm going to pray for you. And I'm going to pray for the Christian to stay alert, to look up. And for the unbeliever, it's time to wake up. It's time to look up. It's time to break up with sin. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I pray for that person. Lord, I pray that each and every one of us can do a soul-searching examination before we have communion. Lord, the Bible says that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, take this and eat it, all of you. This is my body, which will be broken for you. Again, the Bible says he gave thanks and he praise and he took the cup and he lifted the cup and he said bless you Lord for the fruit of the vine that which is crushed Lord he said take it and drink all of you this is the cup of my blood the blood of the new and the everlasting covenant which would be shed for the forgiveness of sin Sin is the problem, and Jesus is the solution. Lord, I pray for the believer that as he or she examines their heart, that they would come to you and rejoice that you're in the business of washing and cleansing, taking away sin and giving life. And Lord, I pray for the unbeliever and perhaps even the make-believer, that he or she would say, what is the condition of my heart? What is the true condition of my soul? Where am I at? And I need to have a right relationship with God. I need to turn from my sin, and I need to turn to the Savior. Heavenly Father, I pray for that person as well, that they would pray that simple and needful prayer. Lord, I know that I'm a sinner and I know that I need a savior. I know that Jesus alone is the solution to the problem of my sin and I trust him alone with confidence to be that savior. Lord, I pray that you would do the work that only you can do. That you would bring life where there was death. That you would bring light 
where there's once was darkness, that you would bring the oil of healing, the oil of cleansing, the balm that makes the person who's empty whole and that you would change us forever. In Jesus' name, amen.